Welcome to the service recording for Sunday, June 20th, Father's Day. Today's songs have been chosen by fathers from within our congregation, and I hope that the music sung and the words spoken will be an encouragement and blessing to you today.
The call to worship is Psalm 7, verses 1 to 9. Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Lord my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have repaid my ally with evil, or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring an end to the violence of the wicked, and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts.
Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our God, this Father's Day, we want to bring before you the fathers of our congregation. It is a hard role to fill. It is a role that pulls in many different directions, has many different stipulations, many different expectations, many different thoughts about what it looks like to do it well. And so God, we pray, first off, just be with our fathers, not only today on Father's Day, but for the rest of the year as well. God, help them to be the parents that they need to be at whatever stage it is that they find themselves in. Lord, help them to build up their children, build up this next generation, so that together we can build your kingdom in the world. And our God, this prayer goes out beyond just our walls as well. It goes out to all of the fathers in the town around us. This is something that is complicated for everybody. And so, Lord, we pray your wisdom and your guidance. And God, also, we recognize that this time of year is one that's very emotionally fraught for a lot of people, whether it be because of an awkward upbringing with your own father or a terrible situation therein, or maybe due to infertility issues or any other thing. For many people, this is such a hard time of year. And so God, we pray, be with these men as well. Be with these men for whom this day is not an uplifting time, is not an uplifting day, is instead an emotional nightmare kind of resting on the edge of a night. God, be with these men today. We pray be their strength. We pray be what they need to get through into the days that come. And Lord, we also pray for these people and press upon those around them what it is that they need in order to get through this time. Lord, this we pray. And God, also looking to the town around us, we want to say thank you so very much that our schools could still run. We want to say thank you so much that they managed to run through until the end of the year. Now as we look forward to summer, God, we pray be with our students, be with our teachers, and be with the staff, that they will know a little bit of rest, that they will be able to recharge, that they will be able to come back to whatever it is that life has for them in the fall, ready to go. And God, we also want to bring our graduates before you as well. We are so proud of them. And so we pray that as they look now to the world ahead of them, that you will be the guidance that they need to know how it is that they need to run out to meet you. Our Lord, we bring all of these things before you today. Amen. Matthew 7, verses 1 to 20. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And today for our guest speaker, we have Andrew Cron. Andrew and his wife, Melissa, are old friends of Shannon and mine from back at Providence and also from our time attending Fort Gary EMC. In the time that I have known Andrew, I have known him to be kind, I have known him to be compassionate, and I have known him to be very smart. And so I look forward to what he has to tell us about our passage today. Good morning, McGregor EMC. I'm very pleased uh, to be worshiping with you this morning, even if it's in in this sort of remote kind of fashion. Uh, I first met Russell and Shannon at, at Providence College uh, when, when we were students there together. I, I was in dorm uh, across the hall from, from Russell. And, and then we, we later uh, grew to know them more. We attended the, the same church, Fort Gary EMC, uh, where I uh, eventually became the, the associate pastor, picking up the mantle uh, from David Cruz after he left to go to, to McGregor. So I, I, I feel... Uh, a fair amount of, of kinship with your congregation, even though I've, I've never been in person uh, to be there with you in your building there in McGregor. So I'm pleased uh, to be able to worship with you this morning. Thanks for having me. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I'm preaching this morning, if you want to follow along, I'm preaching this morning from uh, the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 7, using verses 1 to 20, but mostly focusing on on that first bit of teaching, uh, 1 to 5, and then the last bit, 15 to 20. You can prove anything you want with statistics, or at least that's what the cynics will have you believe. Those same cynics might tell you that you can use the Bible to argue any position you want, so long as you you use the right proof text. It might take a little bit of effort, but it's certainly possible to argue for two seemingly contradictory views using the Bible. For instance, if you want to affirm that God never changes, 
which is a perfectly good thing to affirm, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, you can quote Hebrews 13, verse 8, which says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can even flip a page in your Bible from there to James 1, verse 17, which says, Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There you have it. Not much ambiguity to find in those verses. God doesn't change. If, however, you want to be contrarian, maybe, you want to instead argue that God is dynamic and reactive, that, that God allows himself to be swayed by human petitions. Well, then you might point to the story of Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. Concerning the incident of the golden calf, God told Moses that he was going to destroy this stiff-necked people for making an idol and start over again with Moses. But Moses, he pled for the people, Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people, Moses says. And then in verse 14, the Bible says, And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Or you might turn to the story of Jonah and the Ninevites, for whom God also relented, also changed his mind. Or if you want a New Testament example, look to Jesus' change of heart with the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15. First, Jesus ignored this Gentile woman's pleas. And when she would not be silent, he told her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. One should not throw your pearls before a swine, after all. But at the woman's retort, that even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, Jesus changes his tone completely. He commends her for her great faith, and he heals her daughter as she asked. It seems that maybe God can change. As I said, Usually, one must put in a bit of effort to play the Bible off of itself. Rarely does the Bible do us the favor, or perhaps it is the disfavor, I'm not sure, of providing two seemingly contradictory views within the span of a few verses, as it does in this morning's scripture passage. Do not judge so that you may not be judged, Jesus commands, in a quick pivot from the previous teaching about abandoning worry. But by verse 6 of the same chapter, Jesus tells his hearers not to give what is holy to dogs and not to throw pearls before swine. It's difficult to imagine how to discern who is worthy of the title of dogs or swine without using a fair degree of judgment. By the end of our passage, Jesus even offers us a measurement to use for that very discernment. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Jesus declares. You will know them by their fruits. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So we are to judge trees, prophets, and one would assume teachers, leaders, and perhaps even neighbors by the fruit that they bear. Well, which is it? Do not judge so that you may not be judged, or know them, in other words, judge them by their fruits.
Perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised to find teachings that seem to be at odds with themselves. We do it ourselves, after all. Many hands make light work, we decree, when there are chairs to be stacked, or weeds to be pulled, or, or any number of menial labor tasks. But when the conditions are different, when the, when the work requires a bit more finesse, a, a gentler touch, or a steady hand, we are quick to assert that too many cooks spoil the broth, and we shoo away all of the well-meaning but nosy and disruptive interlopers out of the kitchen, or out of the studio, or the office. Well, what are we to do? It seems if we are to make much headway with Jesus' words, we must use a measure of discernment, judgment even, in our reading and interpreting. But if you can agree together with me, and I sincerely hope that you can, that Jesus is the true vine who bears good fruit, even bears good fruit in me and through me and in you and through you, then we can trust that both sayings in Matthew 7 are true and good. I suspect we have some sense already that there is a difference between the kind of judgment that Jesus is using in verses 1 to 5 and the kind of judgment or discerning that he's describing in verses 15 to 20. At first, it might even seem to be a plain difference, but when we try to apply them closely, it can start to get a little fuzzy. At least it seems so for me. And let's not kid ourselves. We need to hear and understand this teaching from Jesus today. There is judgment aplenty in our world today, whether it regards pandemic protocols and vaccine buy-in or political positions, the, the polarization we see in the world around us is seeping into our churches. And all sides, it would seem, are using too much judgment and too little discernment. Russell told me that he's been using uh, Glenn H. Stassen and David P. Gushy's book, Kingdom Ethics, for this sermon series, and, and I thought I'd follow his lead. Uh, they suggest that we ought to read each of Jesus' sayings in the Sermon on the Mount in three parts. The first part they call traditional righteousness. The, the second, the vicious cycle. And the final part they call the transforming initiative. So, so when Jesus talks about loving our enemies, their breakdown is this. Uh, the traditional righteousness states that we should love our neighbor and hate your enemy. But that leads to, to the vicious cycle of hate. Even tax collectors and Gentiles do that. Instead, Jesus offers a transforming initiative when he teaches us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For our passage this morning, the traditional righteousness position would be to judge others, to condemn others, and the vicious cycle is that we will be judged ourselves according to how we judge others. Well, then the transforming initiative that Jesus offers is for us to take the log out of one's own eye before we examine the speck in our neighbor's eye. If Stassen and Gushi are right in their interpretive process, the key to understanding the teaching of Jesus in this passage is to understand the transforming initiative. So let's start there. 
A few years ago, I heard about the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect was first proposed by two social science researchers. They were named David Dunning and Justin Kruger. In a paper they published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 1999. The paper was titled, Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments. Let me read that for you again, because it's, it's quite a descriptive title. I think it's, it's a helpful title, but it's long. So the title is Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments. The premise of the paper was that in certain disciplines or skill sets, a base level of competence, a base level of, of understanding or ability needs to be achieved before a person is able to give an accurate self-assessment. In fact, that without that base level of competence or ability, people tend to wildly over-assess their ability in those disciplines, in the very disciplines where they are unskilled. Their opening anecdote is that of a bumbling criminal who brazenly robbed two banks in broad daylight and unmasked. He's even reported uh, to be seen smiling directly at security cameras. When the criminal was apprehended a short time later, he was flabbergasted that the police were able to identify him so quickly. But I used the lemon juice, he exclaimed. Somehow, this criminal had so confused the properties of lemon juice, which can be used to make invisible ink, that he thought smearing his face with the stuff would make him unrecognizable to the security cameras. His base knowledge of chemistry was so low, it didn't even occur to him that he might be wrong. In fact, he was so supremely confident in his knowledge of the subject matter that he chose to rob two banks as his initial testing of his theory. He was unskilled, and he was unaware of it. The case of the lemon juice bank robber is comical, but Dunning and Kruger warn us that none of us are immune to the effects of the pitfalls of being unskilled and unaware. In certain disciplines, when we're very unskilled, we tend to overestimate our own ability. In other words, we can be so unskilled in an area that we don't even realize that we are unskilled. Imagine a person who is colorblind. In the right or, or perhaps wrong set of circumstances, a colorblind person can reach adulthood before they realize that they are unable to see the differences between, say, red and green at the same caliber that most of the rest of the world does. And since they are entirely unaware of their own deficiency, they assume that their vision acuity is more or less as good as everyone else's. It may take a surprisingly dramatic failing for the person to realize that they have a deficiency. Now, Jesus, he talks about this sort of thing all the time. Jesus was aware of the Dunning-Kruger effect in the first century in Palestine. In Matthew chapter 15, when the disciples ask Jesus if he know, knows that his words are offending the Pharisees, Jesus tells them, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall 
into a pit. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees' own competency level in righteousness is so low that they don't realize that they are entirely unfit to lead others into righteousness. It is just like a blind person who doesn't realize that they are blind leading another blind person. Both will fall into a pit because of the false confidence of the leader. Now again, before we get too haughty, looking down on the lemon juice robber and the Pharisees for their foolishness, we must remember that Jesus is speaking to us too in his Sermon on the Mount. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye, while the log is in your own eye? We are all of us hypocrites in matters of righteousness. We are all subject to the pitfalls of the Dunning-Kruger effect when the discipline at hand is righteousness. We are from the first to the last in terms of righteousness, unskilled and unaware. And by a trick of our sinful, prideful human nature, that makes us all inclined to overestimate, sometimes rather significantly, our own ability for righteousness, our own ability to see clearly. And so we judge others' sins entirely oblivious to the ways our own sin is corrupting and distorting our own lives. We are like a person who tries to remove a speck from a neighbor's eye and is yet entirely unaware of the two-by-four blocking our own vision. What then are we to do? It would seem that we are completely without hope. A bunch of blind beggars, the lot of us, groping about, posturing, telling others that we can see through the inky blackness. Or perhaps we have some sense of the darkness around, have, have some sense that our vision is not very good. But we hear the voice of someone who says that they see clearly. And if we would only follow them precisely, we'll find our way out to the sunshine. How can we know? How can we know that they are speaking truly, that they are not lying to us, or that they are not bewildered by their own self-deception? We should know them by their fruit, Jesus tells us. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. What's the fruit of the leaders we are following? Is it anger? Hatred? Is it lust for power? Greed? Selfishness? Impurity? Or is it love? Is it joy? Peace? Patience? Kindness? Goodness? Faithfulness? And self-control? Take a moment to seriously consider what is the fruit of the leaders you are following, whether they are political or spiritual leaders or writers or self-help gurus, do they produce good fruit? Well, how can we tell if the fruit is good, you might ask? If our ability to discern is so compromised, how can we know? Well, we know because the one who is truly good has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And insofar as we know Jesus, we know what good fruit looks like. I am the true vine, Jesus says in John 15, and my father is the vine grower. He removes 
every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Blind beggars, the lot of us, who do we follow? I think the answer is if if we find ourselves following anybody other than Jesus, or following anybody other than someone who points us to Jesus, we are in a dangerous position of following somebody that is much like a fool, like the lemon juice burglar. So let's not judge others because we are blind ourselves. We have our own impediments. Let's instead trust Jesus, following Jesus, knowing that he is the true vine who bears good fruit and that he will bear fruit in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, graft us in. We are brittle branches, incapable of bearing fruit. We confess that you are the true vine, and we can only truly live if we live in you. So graft us in, that we may abide in you and you may abide in us. Give us the courage and strength we need to be pruned of all of the dead branches in our lives, so that through you, we may produce fruit abundantly. And cleanse us, Jesus. Open our eyes so that we can see you clearly and follow you and you alone, so that we might not get caught up in the traps and snares others might lay before us. Abide in us so that we might be one, as you and the Father are one. Amen.
And today's benediction comes from the book of 2 Corinthians. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Go now and serve our God.